0: Uh, friends please keep your bibles open to that passage will be um i won't be putting most of the passages on the screen today because there's quite a lot of in-depth work that we've got to do in the scriptures is better if you look at your own bibles so please keep your bibles open if you don't have one uh, then please share with the person next to you we're all willing to share bibles here um, as we look into god's word now the future impacts the present doesn't it the future impacts the present uh, we all know this to be true in different experiences in our life. Um, For those of us uh, who have gotten married, you know that the future impacts the present, doesn't it? The wedding day coming in the future, some of you are planning right now as we speak, it impacts the way you live right now. You can't just rock up on the wedding day and expect things to be okay. You need to prepare. It impacts your present. You need to be prepared for the future as it comes. Or for those of you who have a baby or uh, have a baby coming along the way or have had babies, you know that the due date of your baby changes your life, doesn't it? Doesn't that change your life? You cannot just go on doing everything exactly the same way you were were living before the baby came. You need to be prepared. You need to change the way you live now in preparation for the future. Now, not all of you can relate to those examples, but you can all relate to this one. Exams. Exams. Right? The impending exams coming in the future impacts the way you live right now, or well, at least it should. Right? Maybe not a year out, maybe not six months out, maybe not even a week out, but definitely the night before at least, you change the way you live. You cram as much information as you can into your heads to try and make sure that this future reality of the exam doesn't mean failure for you, right? it impacts the way you live. Knowing what's coming in the future changes how we live right now. So what does God say about the future? What does God say about what is coming and how that should impact the way we live right now? Friends, as we look at the truths of His Word today, we're going to see a picture of what the future reality holds and how that changes everything for us now. And it's the difference between living your life well and completely wasting it. We need to understand the future to live well right now. Now just to have a little bit of context of where we're up to in the book of Mark as we go through our Sermon King series, Jesus has entered Jerusalem and he's been having conflicts with the religious teachers, conflict after conflict, and we see that conflict rising with all these clashes with the religious teachers and it's getting to a breaking point because very soon they will kill Jesus because of these conflicts. They will kill Jesus. But Jesus knows this. This is something he's been predicting as he's been going towards Jerusalem, going towards the cross. He knows that his death will come. This must actually happen. It's part of the plan. And the passage today actually is part of Jesus's farewell discourse as he's just about to go to the cross. And when you're, you have your last words you know on your deathbed, you know that time's up, uh, last words are important, aren't they? This is the start of Jesus' last words, his discourse, his farewell discourse to his disciples. So we need to listen closely to what he says, because these words are very, very important. And the first thing he wants his disciples to know is, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. As we begin this part of the narrative, what's actually happening is that Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. And one of his disciples actually says to Jesus, Hey, teacher, look at, this, look at this building. Isn't it amazing? Look at these massive stones. Look at these magnificent buildings. Wow, these buildings are great. And you know what? This disciple is exactly right. Because the ancient temple, here's a, a representation of what the temple is like. It was a massive building. It was, uh, back in that day, Herod, uh, the corrupt Jewish king, had rebuilt the temple. It was double the size of Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. It was a wonder of the ancient world. It took up one-sixth of the entire area of the city of Jerusalem. It was humongous, with magnificent marble stone and gold everywhere. It was a wonder. People traveled to see this building. It was an amazing building. But do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, he turns to his disciples and he says, I tell you the truth that there will not be one stone left standing on top, of, on top of another of this temple. Jesus says that this temple will be destroyed completely, absolutely destroyed, absolutely destroyed. This glorious, magnificent building will be utterly destroyed. Not, stone, not one stone will be left standing. And you can imagine the disciples' shock at this announcement because what is the temple to the Jewish people? It's the center of worship for them. This is everything to the Jewish people, but they keep silent. They're still processing these things, and they walk across the valley towards the Mount of Olives, uh, which sits opposite the temple, and they're sitting on the bank of the Mount of Olives, and they're gazing at the temple high atop top of this cliffs where, so everyone can see it. And then some of the disciples ask Jesus this question in verse 4. Tell us, when when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And take note of this question because this question actually shapes the rest of Jesus' teaching in this chapter. All of Jesus' teaching is centred around this. And when the disciples say, when will these things happen? What they are actually talking about is primarily the destruction of the temple. When is the temple going to be destroyed? We can't comprehend this. When is this going to happen? But they're not just talking about the temple's destruction, because they realize something. That with the destruction of the temple, it signals something bigger. Because back in the Old Testament, uh, whenever the temple, there's prophecies about the temple being destroyed, and it means God's judgment is coming. The temple's destruction means the beginning of the end. So the disciples are asking not just about the temple, but they're asking, when is the end going to happen? We know all these things are bound up together. So Jesus, in this passage, goes on to talk about the end, the end times, the final days of the earth. And let me take a minute to say that this passage, Mark 13, is perhaps the most complex passage in the entire book. Uh, So I'll do my best to explain this, and I think, you know, uh, what God's laid on my heart of what this passage actually means. Primarily, I see what Jesus is talking about in this passage as being fulfilled in history already, but with relevance for us now because the characteristics that Jesus talks about of these last days for the first century disciples they still carry on for us now they're still truths that to be to be held onto right now they're the same things something we need to understand is the time we live in now right now is the last days is the last days it was kicked off Back then, in the first century, and it continues on till right now. This is the last days. We are waiting for Christ to come back. That's all we're waiting for. It could happen at any time. This is the last days. And Jesus talks about life in the last days. How should we live in light of this truth? How should we live? What does Jesus say about this time? Well, open up with me to verse 5. Verse 5 to 8 of Mark 13. Verse 5 to 8. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So the first thing that Jesus says to them is, Don't be deceived. And the thing, particularly, that he doesn't want them to be deceived about is the coming of the end. That's what he's talking about. Um, there'll be people that come and they say, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm the Christ, I've returned. And when you see these people claiming that, you might be tempted in thinking that the end has actually come, that the end is here because Jesus is back. But they are false prophets. Don't be deceived. The end is not yet. Now, that was a problem back in Jesus' day, false prophets claiming to be the Messiah. But it's a problem for us today, isn't it? You know, there's a, um, this Wikipedia page. I don't know if you've seen it list of people that have claimed to be Jesus. It sounds ridiculous, but it's not, because these people have led countless numbers astray to do horrendous things in the name of Christ. In this day and age, people keep popping up claiming to be the Messiah, but they are false prophets. If someone comes and says that they are Christ, they are not. Trust me, you will know when Christ returns. You will know. Right? It will be unmistakable. It will be a cosmic event that will affect the entire universe. It won't be just some guy claiming to be Jesus. Don't be deceived. That's what Jesus is talking about. But also, don't be deceived. He also says, don't be deceived about the events of the world. When you see and hear about wars, earthquakes, earthquakes, famines, all of these terrible things that happen in the world back then and continue until now. When you see all of these things, don't be deceived. The end is not yet. It's coming. These things must happen before the end, but the end is not yet. They're like birth pains. They'll continue to intensify. They'll continue to get stronger and stronger until the end. But don't be deceived. It's not yet. But amidst this as well, in verse 7, what does it say? It says, don't be alarmed. God is in control. So don't be deceived about these things. But when you see these things, they're things that can cause alarm. Earthquakes, famines, wars, the world as a broken place. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed, because God is in control. And He has a plan. Things will happen in His timing. So do not be alarmed. This is something the disciples had to remember. This is something we have to remember too. Do not be deceived but don't be alarmed about the end, but be on guard as well. We're at to, be on guard. Have a look at, with me at verses nine to 13, all right? Verses nine to 13, have a look with me. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations, Whether, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial do not worry beforehand about what to say just say whatever is given to you at the time for it is not you speaking but the holy spirit brother will betray brother to death and a father his child children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death everyone will hate you because of me but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved living in the last days means you need to be on guard on God, because suffering and persecution are coming for disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you read the account of the early church in the book of Acts, you'll see that this was fulfilled quite literally in the life of the disciples, the apostles of Jesus, because they were literally dragged in front of courts, thrown before magistrates, persecuted, slapped. They were killed for their faith. Extra-biblical history tells us that every one of the apostles was killed because of uh, Christ, except for John, perhaps. Yeah. Killed for their faith, persecuted. This literally happened as we read in the book of Acts. Jesus is telling these disciples of his that being Christians means suffering. It means suffering. And this is still today, it's still true today, isn't it? Open Doors, an organization for. Uh, persecuted the persecuted church worldwide released some figures last year about how many Christians have been killed for their faith. Do you know how many they recorded? Over 3,000 Christians killed because of their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And that's just the ones they know about. This is double the amount of the year before. It's getting worse and worse. Christians suffering and killed for their faith. This is what Jesus is talking about in the last days. And whilst death for our faith is not quite the reality here for us, and we thank God for that, in Australia the atmosphere is becoming increasingly hostile, isn't it? Don't you feel it in the air towards Christians? Let me tell you a story about um, a student called uh, Joshua Lawless, 21-year-old student um, from the University of South Australia. So what happened with him was that he was at uni and he had been convicted by a recent sermon about being bold for his faith, so he wanted to, um, you know, be a good witness in his uni workplace and he was studying with one of his friends and she was struggling with some mental health issues and he said to her, "Um, do you mind if I pray for you because I'm a Christian and I care, so would you mind if I prayed for you? She said, yeah, whatever, you can pray for me. So he did that, he prayed for her and she said to him, well, I'm an... I'm an atheist, but I appreciate that you care, and you prayed for me. A few days later, Joshua, he went to university, uh, went to one of the classes, and there was this girl with a bunch of her friends, and they called him over, and they said to him, what would you do if you had a gay friend? And he said to them, well, I would love them and care for them, because they're my friends, just like any other friend. I think what you're trying to say is, uh, would I agree with what they do? No, not necessarily, but I'd be... You know, happy to talk about that because they're my friend. I love them. Why? What What do you reckon? And this group of people, they stayed silent. They didn't say anything. A few days later, Josh, Joshua received an email from the academic board uh, calling him in to uh, the office. Um, and what actually happened was that he had received a complaint uh, regarding the initial prayer. The initial prayer um, and the complaint was that he had created... Uh, Unsafe learning environment for someone of a different faith. An unsafe learning environment. What happened to Joshua was that he was suspended from university. Um, he, had academic, uh, he had discipline put on his academic record. He had to undergo counseling sessions on how to interact with his peers well. He was told if he came onto university uh, that security would escort him out. This is a true story. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's the world we live in and this is the world that we have to be prepared for as christians you have to be prepared they thought he was a safety risk this is the australia we live in and friends let me tell you something if you want a comfortable life then you shouldn't have chosen the christian path because it is not comfortable jesus doesn't promise that jesus promises suffering be on guard don't be surprised we need to stay vigilant but because we as christians we're not just waiting for possible persecution it's a guarantee it's a guarantee do you understand what jesus says he says this in john 15:20 remember what i told you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me then they will persecute you also do you realize who we follow We follow the suffering servant king, the king who was rejected and beaten and spat on and died on the cross in shame and humiliation. That's who we follow. And remember in Mark 8 what Jesus says, if you want to be one of my disciples, you must take up your cross and follow me. That's what he calls us to. We walk in the blood-stained footsteps of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the suffering servant king. We are not greater than him. We need to expect the same things that came upon our Lord and Savior. That's the reality for Christians. That's the reality. Have you ever wondered why the world hates Christians so much? Because when you think about it, Christians are supposed to be nice and loving people. They should be really really accepted. What makes Christians so offensive? What is it? If the apostles in the first century had just gone around um, doing good things, helping the poor, being nice to people, they wouldn't have been killed for their faith. But they were, because that's not all they did. Everywhere they went, they brought a message with them. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a message that causes offense. Because you know what the gospel tells people? That you are a sinner. That you aren't good enough on your own, you can never be good enough. That you need help, that the only way you can be saved is Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel puts in people's faces and people do not want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. That's an offensive message. There's some of you here who hear that and you're getting defensive, you're you're, you're getting offended by that already. You can't tell me I'm not a good person. I know who I am. How dare God judge me like this? It's not a message that people like to hear, but they need to hear it. Because it's the way to eternal life. We heard that with our brother Darren before. That realization that not being good enough is what is needed to trust in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you will depend on another. That's the only way to eternal life. For those that God has chosen, the gospel will be words of life for others. It will be words that will bring about contempt and hate. And we need to be ready for that. If you're a believer today, are you ready for that? Are you ready? I'd ask you to pray for boldness as you go out into your workplaces, your schools, your unis, your homes, wherever it is, boldness to stand for Jesus Christ in the face of hostility. Will you stand for Him and proclaim the gospel message and the truths of God's word boldly? And are you ready for the shame and the ridicule that will come with that? Are you ready? When your friends are talking about the latest abortion bill and how great they think it is, are you willing to step into that conversation with words of truth in a loving, gentle way? And are you ready for the ridicule that will come when you do that? Are you ready, uh, let's lower the bar, are you ready in your workplace to even just confess that you're a Christian, that when someone says to you, what did you do on the weekend, are you ready to stand up and say, well, I went to church, I learned from the Bible, Um, can I tell you a little bit about what I learned? Is that something you're willing to do? And are you ready for the ridicule that might come when that happens? And friends, let me put a challenge to you out there. If you're not being persecuted for your faith, if you're not suffering for your faith, if people aren't persecuting you, maybe it's because they just don't know who to persecute. Because you're blending in with the world so much that you're just living like one of them. That you're not a target because you're not sticking out. It's the, hammer, it's the nails that stick out that get hammered. And Christ calls us to be set apart. That's what the word holy means. He calls, us, he calls us to be different. We will stand apart, stand out from the rest of the world. And that will make us a target. But we do so for him. I'll let me give you an assurance from verse 11. Have a look at verse 11 with me. Mark 13, verse 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Friends, we have assurance that, you know what? Every, along the whole way, you know who's with us? God is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. He gives us the words to say. Even as we stumble and even as we fail to explain things as articulately as we should, you know what? God uses those words for His glory. You can have confidence in that. You don't have confidence in yourself. That's not what God wants you to have. He wants you to have confidence in Him. He will give you the words to say. They might not be received as you might want, but this is God in control. There's assurance there. There's comfort there. God is with us. The Holy Spirit's with us. So take confidence in this. Take confidence, friends. Have faith in this now if you're not someone who calls themselves a Christian today or you are a Christian and you're hearing what I'm saying today you might be thinking why on earth would I sign up for this why on earth would I want to become a Christian or if you are a Christian you're thinking maybe I made the wrong decision <laughs> suffering persecution what what why would I do this why well let me tell you something This suffering, it's worth it. This suffering is worth it. A huge theme in the Bible is that through suffering comes glory. That was what happened with Christ. Through the suffering of Him on the cross comes the glory of the resurrection and His enthronement as King. And that's the same for us. Through suffering comes glory. Have a look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved the one who stands firm to the end will be saved christians will be hated because they represent christ they will be persecuted because they live for jesus but the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved and this isn't just a salvation from persecution that jesus is talking about it's not just a salvation from persecution it's not even just a salvation from judgment a salvation from hell it's a salvation to something a salvation to eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our salvation uh, for life, real life in the kingdom of God. It's a salvation to the joys of perfection with our God and Savior. This is what's in store for those who persevere till the end. And let me tell you, that is worth more than anything in this world. Anything. When you think about our brothers and sisters overseas, in North Korea, for example, the most persecuted country in the world as Christians, what makes them persevere through times of suffering? What makes them hold on to their faith whilst they're being threatened with death or being put in prison camps and also three generations of their family being put in prison camps because they simply call themselves Christians? What makes them hold on to their faith at that time? Well, it's the promise of the gospel, isn't it? What other hope do you have in the face of certain death and immense suffering than an eternal hope in Jesus? There is none. And that's what keeps our brothers and sisters going. And that's what keeps us going too. Do you believe that this faith is worth holding on to? Do you believe that what's coming is worth it? You need to have that belief, otherwise you will not hold on in times of suffering. Hold on to this truth. Hold on. Now, friends, let me just address um, verse 14 just really briefly because this, <clears throat> if you look at verse 14 with me. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the disciples are asking Jesus, Give, tell us, what's the sign that all this stuff is going to happen? What's the sign of the end? Well, Jesus gives them one. The abomination of desolation will be standing in place that you, where it doesn't belong. <coughs> the question is, what on earth is this? What what are they talking about? Once again, there's been a lot of debate about this. I'll just briefly talk about about it. And um, what I think um, this is talking about is a historical fulfilment. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> in history, where around 8067, 8068, uh, a group of Jewish uh, rebels who were fighting against the Roman Empire, started actually using the temple as a military base, and they committed horrendous acts there. Murder, sin, they instituted this terrible man as um, the high priest. It was a disgraceful time. The temple was desecrated, and the people fled the land at that time. And you know what it led to? It actually led to the Roman Empire crushing the Jewish people in AD 70 and destroying the temple, burning it to the ground, so there was nothing left that's the suffering that came. That was a time of immense suffering. That's what I think it's talking about here. And that was the event that ushers in the last days, the, start, the beginning of the end. Yeah? The beginning of the end now. We live in the last days. In the midst of suffering, Jesus wants us to be on guard. Be on guard. But he also says, stay awake. Stay awake. Suffering is not the only thing that the disciples of Jesus have to watch out for. They're also to watch out for the return of their King. Have a look at verse 24 with me, 24 to 27. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. The time of distress, the time of tribulation, it, it started back then, but it continues now. We suffer as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we heard before that there's hope because salvation is coming. But how will that salvation come? When will that come? Well, it tells us here. It comes with the return of Jesus Christ, the triumphant King. That's what we're waiting for. You know what we're waiting for here? It's Jesus. We're waiting for Him to return. In the midst of suffering, there is hope. Because our King is coming. Verse 26 says, At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man. A reference to Daniel 7, a prophecy about the one who has all dominion and all power and all authority in the whole universe. That's who's coming back. The triumphant King returns to crush His enemies. To judge His enemies. But also, for those that belong to Him, look at verse 27 with me. And He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. The return of Christ is a fearsome day for those who do not stand with Jesus Christ, because He is the King of the universe with all power and authority and glory. But for those that stand with Him, it's a day of comfort, a day of assurance that this suffering will not win. That this world against us will not win but that we will stand with christ in victory at the end if christ is for us who can be against us this is the king of the universe we're talking about and that is the comfort for christians who hold on to the faith that we will stand with our triumphant king that gives us the boldness to stand up in these last days doesn't it knowing that jesus christ is victorious already we have certainty we have certainty That victory awaits. That something better is coming. That's what keeps us going. And what should we do as we wait for that day? We'll have a look at verse 32 with me to 37. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. You know how you see on the street corners those guys who predict the day of the coming? Or you see on the news, like, oh, Christ is going to come back November 25th at 3 p.m. Everyone get ready. You know you see those guys? Well, when you see those guys, they're wrong, okay? Okay? they do not know when Christ is coming that's what this verse says no one knows when Christ is going to come back nobody knows and there's a point to this It's so we stay awake we stay awake now um, in your workplace if your boss says to you hey I'm gonna go on a holiday um, and I'll be back in a week I'll be back on Friday at 2 p.m. in the afternoon Um, I bet you, you'll be tempted to slack off until he comes back, right? Until right before he comes back. But if he said to you, um, I'm going away, but I could be back at any time, any time, any hour, any day, right? You never know when I'm going to be back. You're going to live differently, right? And it's because of our sinful hearts that we will tend to procrastinate about the work that we have to do until it really needs to be done, Jesus knows that, and that's the same with us in our Christian life. We will procrastinate and fiddle around with the things of the world until um, we're certain that Jesus is coming back. That's our temptation. So Jesus doesn't tell us. He wants us to stay awake. He wants us to stay vigilant. He's given us work to do, work to do right now. We need to be staying awake to do that work. Did you realize in verse 10 that we read before when the disciples were talking about the end, Jesus says, but first... The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. What are we here for? Why hasn't Christ come back? He's waiting for more people to be saved. He's waiting for the gospel to go to every nation on earth so that more can come into the kingdom and be saved. That's what he's waiting for. The end will not come until the gospel keeps going out and saving more and more and more. That is the task that is left for His people here. We have work to do, and we need to stay awake and vigilant to do that work. There's urgency to this work too, right? Because the fact that we don't know when Christ will return gives urgency. Christ could return in a hundred years. Christ could return in a year. Christ could return tomorrow. Christ will return right now. You might be thinking to yourself, I'll leave the task of working for God till tomorrow. Well, there may not be a tomorrow. The time is now. I wonder, as you shared before, about what would you do if you knew the world was ending tomorrow? How many of you talked about, um, I'll share the gospel with a family member or friend that I've always wanted to. If the world's ending tomorrow, I'll, I'll do that. I'll get in there and do that. Well, the world could end tomorrow. The world could end today. There is urgency in the task that we have at hand. Christ Jesus our Lord will return. We don't know the day or the hour, but when he does, it will be too late. It will be too late. Friends, our job here, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a job. You have the words of life with you. The message of the gospel that we carry. This is the hope of the world. There is no other. This message we carry means eternal life and people need to hear that. People are perishing all around us. There is urgency to this task because when Christ returns, it will be too late. So here's my encouragement to you. Live each day like it's your last because it very well could be. Stay awake as we look forward to the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, our triumphant King in all victory. Let me pray. Father God, help us to stay awake, to be on guard in these last days against the suffering that's to come to prepare ourselves, but to stay awake, to keep doing your work as we await the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, give us the strength and the boldness to stand up, even though we will be shot down in so many different ways. But we know that Christ is worth it, Father. Give us that conviction and help us to keep holding on to the hope of eternity that awaits. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.